2: Hello and welcome to All Stats Aren't We, a podcast in which Leeds fans cast their combined eye over goings on at Elland Road, giving scrutiny to the underlying statistics and tactical footings at work at Leeds United. I'm Tom Woodhead, the Marcelo Bielsa of the podcast, bringing fresh new ideas to a team that, let's face it, has been crying out for them. And I'm joined by Tom Alderson, the Graham Potter of the podcast, young, urbane and ready for the next step. And finally, the Sam Allardyce of the podcast. You know what you're getting and you only have yourself (laughs) to blame. It's John McKenzie. John, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. I'm doing well, mate. It's, uh, It's very warm um so i've got my pint of wine in front of me it's all good and i know this is a i know this is something that really winds you up so i'm really going to go to town in it so yeah definitely a pint of wine in front of me
2: (laughs) i will hear no more about the pint of wine how about you tom how are you doing
3: i'm good thanks i think this is the first time i've been on a podcast that john hasn't hosted so i feel like i'm meeting my new stepdad but my dad's watching and it's all a little bit awkward
2: (laughs) well i'm not gonna have to say tom alderson to you i can just say good old-fashioned tom so that might help (laughs) So today we're going to be talking about tactics and going through various terms and ideas and concepts that people may or may not be aware of uh, to give a sort of overview of the Leeds tactical landscape and the landscape of tactics in football in general to a certain extent. Uh, But before we get into that, uh, just some news. Um, Since we last recorded, Leeds have announced a couple more friendlies. Um, We've got one against Real Batiste on the 31st of July which is the day after the Fleetwood game so I would imagine uh, it'll be another case of um, two separate 11s as Bielsa likes to do uh, playing the majority of the 90 minutes for those two games the Fleetwood and Batiste games and uh, and then we've got a prestige friendly with Ajax on the 4th of August which um, should be presumably the first time that we'll see the likely starting lineup against Manchester United or something very close to it. So, uh, Tom, how are you feeling about that? Uh, the Ajax game?
3: Um, it's a shame that there's no fans there because I was going to suggest an all-sets-on wee trip to Amsterdam, but that's that's out the window now. So, but yeah, that is good. Like compared to the fr- compared to the friendlies we've had over well, my time as a Leeds fan, it's just nice to have one of one against a big team. Um, so I'm looking forward to it, yeah, and like you said, it should be the first eleven, so it gives us a really good idea of how it's going to go for this season, hopefully.
2: What about you, John? You're a man who knows a lot about European football. Any thoughts on Leeds against Ajax?
1: Yeah, I, the Eredivisie in general, a bit of a blind spot for me. Josh Hobbs is the, is the uh, Eredivisie expert in this parish. But yeah, it should be an exciting game. Ajax obviously have uh, a lot of decent players and they play a, a really fun brand of football. So uh, I expect that to be a fun game. Although I did notice that there were some people suggesting that Ajax have a cup game, maybe two or three days after they play us, in their opening game in the season uh, in in. I guess Bundesliga fashion the Eredivisie must start its cup um, game or its cup run with the very opening game of the season so um, whether or not we'll see a strong 11 from Ajax I don't know but is is that five friendlies we've got then so it's um, there's a there's a Geisley game there's a Blackburn game there's a Fleetwood game and then Betis and Ajax is that five friendlies?
2: Yeah so you would expect I guess 211s to play the first four games hmm. uh, or the majority of them yeah. and then we'll see something of a coming together for the Ajax game.
1: Yeah it should be it should be really good fun and it's going to be fascinating seeing what the starting 11 looks like because uh, yeah we just don't we just don't really know where everyone's at in the squad right now uh, after the preseason whether or not Bielsa thinks that uh, certain players have have pipped other players to to the post in terms of the f- uh, starting 11 so I'm quite excited to see who is going to be the the sort of starting 11 for the season
2: And the other little bit of news is that Leeds look like we're pretty close to the signing of Lewis Bate from Chelsea for what looks like about £1.5 million. John and Josh will be recording an author's list about Lewis Bate
1: yeah, that's recorded today so we, I'll put it out probably on Thursday at some point just so that this episode has a chance to to hit first. But yeah, we had a lovely long chat about a few targets actually this week. Um, we talked about the central midfield role really. So we looked at uh, Farid Boulaya who's a player who's been linked um, from Metz in France. We talked about okay Yakuzlu who was on loan last season at, at West Brom who... Some of you might know uh, Lewis Bate from from the Chelsea setup, um, and also uh, the new player came came up. I guess he was linked last night, uh, called Jens K- Kajusta, who is a Swedish youngster who's playing in Denmark at Midtjylland. Uh, and Josh is very excited about him. I haven't had the chance to watch him yet, so if any of that is interesting to you, head over to our Patreon and and um, Patreon and have a have a check of that. That will be out um, tomorrow, I think.
2: Okay, let's get into it then. As I was saying earlier, this is going to be a Leeds specific chat, but we'll try and address some general points as well. It would be a bit difficult, I think, to cover the entire of football tactics in, a, in the space of an hour or so. But um, we've got an interesting question from Sebastian Uhlenberg to start with. Um, and he and he says, uh, where exactly do you guys separate tactics and strategy? Also, do you do you discern which actions and movements within a game are down to tactics and strategy, and which are just a product of multiple individual decisions by the players? Uh, we'll come to you on that, John.
1: Yeah, an interesting question. I guess it's it's sort of highlighting the gap there is between the theoretical and the and the and the actual play on the field. So obviously, whenever you're talking about tactics um there is always going to be that gap between you know the theories and ideas that we're talking about the theories and ideas that coaches are talking about when they're talking to the players and um and what actually unfolds on the pitch and i spe- i suppose sebastian's question is you know how much how much are these games scripted how much wiggle room is there when a coach is planning a game how much will they um Will, will they be able to say and, and expect the players to replicate that on the field? So an interesting question. It was, it was funny. Um, last night, Josh and I actually spoke to Graham Smith, who is uh, everyone knows who Graham Smith is. So I'm not going to explain who Graham Smith is, but he was talking about, um, one of the weird phenomena from last season was that he were able to hear Marcelo Bielsa giving tactical instructions in empty stadiums because there was no fans. Um, and he was saying that he was amazed at how simple. The instructions that are given are so um, he said it was mainly just Tyler move that he he would hear but you would hear a lot of stuff about you know watch the ball move to the ball really basic instructions and so the I guess the big question for a lot of people who are maybe a little bit more tactics um, sceptical would be uh, I, I, an outlet like us who talk a lot about the tactics, maybe probably overplay them in, in terms of what um, the, the coaches and the players are thinking of. Is there an expectation that players are actually thinking about these things as they go or is it just a case that good players will sort of just have a rough idea of what to do? Will they not even really think about it but they'll have training sessions which mean that, mean that they, they sort of naturally make movements rather than even thinking about them so um, yeah, I think it's a fair question. Um, so I I think what we're trying to do is just post hoc after the fact look at what's going on and say are there any ideas here that we can pick out are there any repeatable actions that could suggest that a coach is saying this is the way that you want to play so yeah i guess this is a bit of a caveat to say this is just us doing guesswork after the fact watching the tape but um there's a big gap between what we're doing and and what it is that the coaches are doing as well in in uh, training sessions
2: and it feels like Leeds fans are almost uniquely positioned to see the effects that tactics can or cannot have on a squad because they've, uh, we've had so many managers over the last 10 years for a start who have varying, varying approaches. And we've all obviously had a master tactician in Marcelo Bielsa come in and completely change how, how a lot of these players play. So, Tom, do you think having Marcelo Bielsa in charge and contrasting with what went before has that increased your understanding or of tactics
3: yeah absolutely like before bielsa i would say that i didn't really have any understanding of of tactics and i just mainly because the, what came before him was just so disinteresting and like what, what john said about there being like repeatable actions and that's probably what you would define as a tactic like how often did Any manager that came before Bielsa in the last 10 years have a repeatable action that we could actually say, oh, that's something that we're trying to do apart from maybe Monk saying hit it into the channels and Chris would all chase it. Like There really wasn't that much. So, yeah, I would say Bielsa has definitely sort of improved my knowledge, but I've also been more interested in the tactics that we're seeing now. So that's probably a factor in it as well.
2: I think you might be being a little bit unfair on Simon Grayson's kickoff routine. (laughs) You lump it back and then the striker pulls out to the left wing and the ball goes straight out for a throw-in. If that's not a repeatable action, I'm not sure what is. um, Okay, so we're going to split this podcast in in general into three parts. Uh, We'll start off talking about structure. Then we'll move on to talking about movement. And then at the end, we'll have a little bit of a glossary where we can talk about some various terms that people may have heard and what they mean and how they can be applied to tactics. So we'll start with structure. And there's a very interesting question here from Dan Holdsworth. So he says, I know formations are passe in these parts, but Bielsa's leads are often written up as a 4-1-4-1, whereas Pep City are described as a 4-3-3 when they play a centre forward. Yet the team shape isn't massively different. Do you think there is a functional difference between the formations? And My my immediate thought on this is that it's almost all to do with the way that people have written it down um, and the way that people are used to calling it. Do you have any thoughts on that, Tom?
3: I don't know if it's just unique to Bielsa, but um, me, me, John and Josh had a chat about this, actually, like, that um, on Patreon at some point, that Bielsa is, like, it's a defensive formation, um, whereas I don't know if that's the case for other managers. Um, but I think, for me, like, the four-one-four-one kind of makes me think that the two wingers are more out-and-out wingers, whereas the 4 makes me think that the two wingers are more sort of... You would, put, if you were on football manager, you'd call it an inside forward. So that's that's the difference for me if I was going to describe it. But the, I just don't. I think like a four-one-four-one or four-three-three, and even like a four-two-three-one are all in effect free midfielders, free further forward players, aren't they? So it's it's weird how people distinguish between the, the two of them when. We're written down as a four-one-four-one, but we were playing a um, probably playing a four-two-three-one to a large extent last season.
2: So you think it's almost an expression
3: of width? I would say that in this case, yeah. I don't know if that's the case for every formation.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, we we had another question that I haven't put in here, but um, it was it was talking about why it is that when we talk about formations, we we're mainly talking about defensive structure. So when we when we say four-one-four-one, that's the way that leads will we'll be seeing it when, when the opposition have the ball and they're a little bit deeper in their own half um, with your two your two full-backs dropped in alongside the centre-backs and then your two wingers tucked in alongside the, the central midfielders. Um, and I, I suspect the reason why we call the Leeds a 4-1, 4-1 is because of that, um, because there is the expectation that the wide players do defensive work. Um, but... Yeah, I think it's 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 important to to accept as as um, as Dan says that formations are I suppose a little bit passe um, in the sense that um, a formation really is just it is very much just a an attempt to put a figure on on a very fluid system and as we know with Marcelo Bielsa that that system will change as soon as we become attacking the two center backs the two full backs sorry will push up um, we 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 all at, at times see the defensive midfielder drop in behind and uh, drop in b- between the the two center backs or maybe to one side or other of the two center backs making a three um you may see um formations where there is um, an asymmetry so for example Spurs this season under um, Nuno are are talking about playing quite an asymmetrical back four where one of their fullbacks will push far much further forward than the other and they'll attack down one side and and that means you can have maybe a a more defensive fullback on one side and a more attacking fullback on the other so there is that asymmetry there and um, as we'll talk about in the movement section a big edge that, that Marcelo Bielsa gets from Leeds is, is this ability to plunder space through player movements as well. So um, formation, I think, is more just a, a shorthand to, to sort of tell you roughly where the players are. But in this instance, I I do just think it's just a reflection of the fact that if you're a wide player in a Bielsa system, you're expected to do a lot more defensive work than you are if you're in a front three in a, in a, a pep team.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. So when you talk about Leeds' tactics, one of the first things that comes up is the man-marking system and that's because hardly anyone else uses it in world football. So why, John, do you think Bielsa does choose to use a man-marking system and what difference does it make, the fact that he does choose to use one?
1: Yeah, I go backwards and forwards on this because the man-marking system, I think, is is all there um, because the way that Marcelo Bielsa wants to press um, is, is, is impl- influenced by it. And I guess I end up always in this sort of chicken and egg scenario where I'm kind of thinking, do we have a man marking system because it makes it easier to press? Or do we press because Marcelo Bielsa wants to use a man marking system in that sense as well? So, um, I think that the two things are really, really closely, um, aligned in, in that sense that if you, if you are man mark, if you're man marking, if players have, um, a, a marking responsibility, when it comes to pressing structures, there's no confusion about who should be pressing who because you're largely pressing the same player every time. And I think the reason why Bielsa likes the man marking system is because of that, because it does just take it takes a level of conceptuality out of it. So players don't need to be thinking, right? Who should I be marking now? What should my pressing action be? They can simply be like, What should my pressing action be? Uh, I know where my player is now. As, as we'll go on to talk about in a minute there's a little bit of fluidity in the, in the man marking system. So it's not quite so simple as that, but I think Bielsa likes the man marking system because there's just a level of conceptual simplicity to it, which just allows you to um, have that in the back of your mind. You don't need to talk through who's marking who in every game um, beyond the, this is your responsibility conversation. And that's it.
2: Do you think that um, because the fact that Marcelo Bielsa has been managing a long time and he found he's, started formulating his tactical identity back I guess in the I'm not sure if it was the early 90s or the late 80s when he was working at Newell's Old Boys with the youth team Um, but back then man marking was much more common but pressing was much less common so do you think that this combination of man marking and pressing came about partially because Bielsa was such an early adopter of pressing when man marking was considered a much more valid mainstream idea in football?
1: Yeah it's an interesting question I'm not 100% 100% on the genealogy of it. I think I'm right in saying that the current approach that Bielsa has emerges when he is um, back in Argentina after he's been to Mexico for a little while. Uh, I don't think he necessarily, ple- I don't think they necessarily played like a high man marking system in his in his stint at Newell's um I obviously haven't watched any of those games or or really read any of the tactics of that time but I'm pretty sure that he comes back to to Argentina after he for a stint just before he then comes across to Europe um I think he goes to um he goes to one of the Spanish sides Espanol I I think Espanol exactly and and he um he he doesn't really manage there because he gets picked up by the Argentinian national team, um, but I think that before that he's at um, he is at an Argentine side. Um, I, I should um, Velez Sarsfield, I think it is. Yeah, yeah, Velez, um, and I think that's where the the real classic Bielsa tactics really um, emerge. I think it's probably not a temporal thing; it's probably more of a continental thing. I think probably, um, as you said, in, in Argentina there is that there, there is a tendency for football to be more vigorous to be more um high tempo etc etc and i think the what happens then is he probably plays this fairly intense pressing football early on and i think man marking is brought in as a way of maybe formalizing that structure a little bit more but um i'm just vamping here Uh, i don't know what the actual genealogy looks like
2: Okay, so apart from my marking, one of the other unusual things that Marcelo Bielsa does is that he will always change his own team's formation um, in some relation to the opponent's formation, often many, many times per game. I can't think of any other manager that will do this literally every other time, every single time the opponent changes formation. And we've described this in the past as a sort of plus one, minus one concept uh tom could you explain to us what that is
3: yeah so basically the the plus one minus one concept is that uh Biels will always want his um when leads to def- the, the leads defense so i'll use a back four as an example um to have pl- an extra man over the the opposition so if we're playing a back four you the opposition will be playing in a front three and then at up front we will say we're playing um two wingers and bamford so f- three up Free uh, up front. They will be playing. Um, they're playing a back four because we will have one one less man than them. Um, and this is basically just so that we have the extra man when we're defending, so that three of them players can go man for man, and then the extra um, what the extra defender is sort of covering the space. So then it's almost like almost like cleaning up if any if any players um loses their man, and we have the the minus one up front because I just think it's be is happier to. Sort of have a man free in that area of the pitch because they're not as likely to well they're not going to cause you as much damage really unless they go full John Stones getting a million progressive yards against man against us. Um, but yeah, it's just because he's, he's happy to have an extra man there and he, he's also maybe this is something we'll come on to later. But it's then you can see it in the way that the forward presses is that they they will press the. Uh, the free centre-back or the free defender to try and sort of block the pass to the other man but that's that's an area of the pitch where you're more happy to do that rather than in the midfield or, or um, when they're the opposition are attacking.
2: And people talk, don't they, about Bielsa's famous 3-3-1-3 um, as though that's some formation that he feels is a platonic ideal of football but really that only developed um, as a as a counteraction to the homogeneity of four four two in football at the time when he when he when he was mostly playing it, I think if you look back through Bielsa's most recent few clubs, he is actually very rarely playing the three three one three because most teams are playing with one striker now, aren't they?
1: Yeah, so I guess that if you're going to be matching up player for player and you're going to have an extra defender at the back and you have to take that extra player from the front, you you're you are so dependent, as you've said, on what the opposition are playing. So. Marcelo Bielsa doesn't sit down and say right which formation are we going to play against this team um, because I want to play in a certain way he will always think right what's the, the most likely formation that this team will be playing in and, and then you just plug in the numbers and out at the other end pops pops the formula so yeah you'll mat- he'll match up in the midfield so mid- midfield if it's four midfielders across so two central midfielders and two wide players you'll just match as, uh, for leads as well so you have two midfielders marking the two midfielders and then the two wide players marking the two wide players uh, and then obviously the plus and minus concept at the back and front so yeah when you have a four four two, you have um, a back three against two strikers, and then you have a front three against a back four um at the other end. So you're you're sort of forced into having a three three one three-ish formation. Um so because because so many teams are playing four four two. teams don't really play four four two as much now, although we are seeing a bit of a resurgence of it. Uh, and so that means that leads more likely to play in either the four one four one or four two three one, some iteration of that. We occasionally see a three five two against a three five two, but all of these things just come down to the fact that there's going to be a logical structure. Players are going to match up, and you're going to have that plus one um, at the at, at the back and the minus one at the at the front to to allow you to to be able to do the um, the man marking system.
2: And other other than the things that it's necessarily designed to do, which is as we as we said to counteract the opponent's structure, Tom, um, what do we think the main differences are between when we play with a back three and when we play with a back four?
3: We struggle more. I think building up in a 3-3-1-3. I think that's something that we've said a lot on this podcast, and it's it's never something that I've managed to sort of or we've we've never managed to sort of pinpoint pinpoint why that is the case. I think it's the the only explanation I can ever sort of give for it is that we we lose we lose. Um, an eight, I think, in that formation. So it, we kind of lose one of those players, sort of dropping in, or that extra option for a pass. Which means that I just, I just think we we struggle with um, building up and passing is more. Because I think apart from that, I don't think there are many differences between the way we attack in that formation compared to when we play a back four.
1: Yeah, I was going to say that whenever we play in, even in in that four one four one, we can end up almost forming a, a three one. Th- uh, three, three, one three-three-one-three formation in our build-up play as well, with the with the fullbacks pushing forward and um and and uh, yeah, everyone else sort of falling into that into that schema. So one of the one of the, if one of the eights pushes forward is almost like a ten, um and and the wingers push up alongside Bamford. Then you got your front three, you got a ten, and then um, your DM sort of pushes up alongside the other eight. And um, yeah, I guess you end up sort of roughly with a with your with your three-three-one-three three, three formation there again depending on how it goes. So uh, I, I think that Bielsa likes the fact that, because so much of what we're going to talk about in the movement section is about set routines and, and movements and, and interchanges and exchanges that are, are regular there's something about the man marking system as well which adds to it from an attacking point of view that it allows you to know that your players are roughly going to be in the same sorts of positions starting positions if they're matching up to the uh, the opponent that, that they can then just fall into these uh, routine attacking plays um, so I've written about this uh, on, on our medium somewhere but just sort of looking at some of the, the reasons why you might use a man marking system and I do think that is that is one of them the, the other thing you can get there as well is that if everyone's man marking in an out of possession phase when you win the ball back because you're close to your player you can get a run on your player quite easily so you can run into the space behind them Um, and usually you get the benefit from that as well so I do think everything sort of ties up you have the man marking system because Bielsa wants to play a sort of high pressing game and he thinks this this helps him to do that but he also wants to play a high pressing game because he wants to control the ball quickly Um, he wants to have possession of the ball wants to get it back as quickly as possible um and in order to be able to get the ball back and then involve himself in or involve the team in these transitional um, build-up plays as well. So there's a sort of, um, there is a sort of osmosis between these two, um, that's probably not the right word, but sort of like an organic um interchange between these two things and the man marking helps you and your attacking play and your attacking play is benefited by your your man marking high pressure because it allows you to try and control the ball it allows you to be attacking but then win the ball back without necessarily leaving yourself open for for counter attacks and stuff so yeah it's it's quite beautiful how the whole thing sort of melds together
2: and this isn't anything that i've got on the running order but i just realized that we've not actually explained to the listeners i think most of them will be aware but you know what is a six what is an eight what is a ten I think everyone knows what a nine is, but, and I think most people probably know what a ten is, but if you can just briefly explain what a six and an eight would, would be.
1: There's people who will argue that the numbering system is wrong. They will say the English system is to say that a defensive midfielder is a number four. I think that's maybe the English way of doing it, and then six is maybe an Argentinian way of doing it, which is what Bielsa will do. But yeah, a six is just a, a defensive midfielder, and eight is, is more of a you know a sort of Uh, central midfielder who's probably a bit more of a ball carrier uh, and then a 10 slightly more attacking attacking midfielder but I I guess at this point it is interesting to talk about those positions because obviously Leeds do play with a single pivot so you can talk about the six or four no problem but when you're talking about an eight Leeds have two eights, and people will talk about maybe a slightly more attacking eight and a, uh, uh, and, a and a more, I guess, ball carrier eight. But I do think that that's p- perhaps overstated a little bit. Um, I don't think that Bielsa necessarily thinks that I need to have an attacking player and a defensive player. It's happened that way in this in this season's Premier League, and I suppose we've we've roughly had had a more um, attacking. Midfielder or, or and defensive midfielder in those eight spots, but I guess thinking back to having Adam Forshaw and and Mateusz Click in those two positions, I wouldn't necessarily describe Click as a ten.
2: It's not like you to think back to that period, John.
1: <laughs> I do occasionally go back and and cast my mind back to those whatever it was seven games at the beginning of the this, the promotion season, but. um I'd, yeah, I do think that you, we can overstate it. You can force players into that system too much and say, well, we need to have this kind of player on one side and this kind of player on the other. Uh, I think there's an extent to which, as we've seen this season, you know, Bielsa can pretty much play with a two-man pivot at times. It was not really a pivot, but a two-man defensive system um, when when he when he wants to with dallas um dallas is probably more of a six than he is an eight in those in those systems maybe a little bit more of a box-to-box player so you probably would call him the eight but um yeah i think when you when you have a mixture of players you play in different ways the 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 formation can sort of accommodate for that and i think that bielsa isn't too worried about necessarily having a, a sort of ideal in his head about who should play in those two eight positions so
3: We've seen it quite a lot over what so what three seasons now. Like it was it was size and click for a long period until size left. And I think it was mainly Roberts and Click. So it's like they which you would all think they're more attack minded players and then we had the probably the ideal version where we was for sure, I don't know if that's Bielsa's ideal or or our ideal. Um and then it was it was Pablo for a long stretch. So there isn't whilst we, yeah, we we all do talk about the more attacking eight and the more defensive eight it, it we've shown over three three years of Bielsa that it's it's easily changeable and not something that's really set in stone
2: and going back to the man marking system uh, i've kind of messed the order of this up a little bit but um how does it change when it comes to set pieces uh, are we still strictly man marking or are we a little bit more nuanced than that
1: yeah i think we have two zonal players in a in a Corner routine usually. Obviously, it changes up a little bit on free kicks, depending on where the free kick's being taken by the opposition. But we'll have Bamford on the front post as the first player to head the ball away, and we usually have either Rafinha or Jack Harrison um, uh, on the front post, just hug- hugging the post. And the, the idea, I think, with those being those two being three, is that if you are in a situation where you can then counter attack, you don't want them to necessarily worry about their player. So. You've got you're covering the front post, but then in the event of a counter attack, they can just bomb forwards and, and and put pressure on the opposition as well. Same with Bamford for that for that matter too. But Bamford probably one of our better defensive set piece um, players in many respects.
2: Do we think that Bamford is given that role because he's he's good in the air and because he can get he can get those balls away, or do we think it's because? In regular play, he doesn't have a man mark, a man marking duty assigned, so it's simpler that way uh, to leave him at uh, set pieces, not having one.
1: Yeah, it's possible. Um, I, again, I suspect that he probably would be our best defensive header of the ball. Weirdly, um, so I don't know whether or not they've ever talked about him potentially being in the middle and uh, and taking on the the strongest header for the opposition. Uh, but I I suspect it's probably just more to do with the fact that they just want him to be flexible to get out. Um, and I guess if he runs towards the ball, the heads of the ball out, um, he's that he can then sort of just follow his run, run on and 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 create space. Whereas I think obviously if you don't win the second ball after a set piece comes in, your defense your defensive players, man on man, are gonna have to stay in the middle and keep close to their players. Whereas I think they just want Bamford then to once he's done his job of clearing the ball to just get into an attacking position where he can then hold the ball up. So I suspect it's probably more to do with that
2: Okay, so let's move on to talk about pressing because pressing is uh, something that everyone talks about when it comes to Leeds United. We regularly are putting up the highest running numbers and that kind of thing. But what we're going to talk about now is is the high press and the counter press, which is also known as gegenpressing pressing from the Germans who invented it. As far as I can tell, this this uh, this counter pressing idea. And I think it was Jurgen Klopp had the famous quote that um, Gagan pressing is the best playmaker or something like that. Um, so... Uh, John, can you tell us a little bit about uh, about just uh, counter pressing in general? I mean, I know you watch a lot of German football, so you should be fairly familiar with the the sort of uh, origins the origins of this and how it developed.
1: Yes, I think it's important at this point to distinguish between high pressing and counter pressing because those two things are very different. Um, so a high press is simply any pressure pressure system which is going to try and engage with the opposition high up the pitch. Um, so you'll probably be pressing you know, you, you'll probably be pressing their centre-backs in the build-up play. Um, or if they're if, if the opposition is sort of hemmed in, you'll have players um, just stopping the opposition from settling on the ball and then being able to clear the ball down the field and, and reduce some of the pressure. So that's what a high pressure, a uh, high press is. Um, and it's, I think, also important to say that, you know, we talk, we're, we're going to talk about high press, we're going to talk about a mid-block and we're going to talk about a low block. And these are all different pressure systems. Um, but there is always going to be... Um, commensurability between them. That You you will never just entirely high press. There'll be situations where you'll have um, a mid-press, mid, mid press, you'll have a, a low block in certain situations as well. Every team will do different things um, but I guess when we're talking about a team like Leeds being high-pressed, what we're saying is that their instinct is going to be to try and engage as quickly as possible with the ball uh, and that will mean if the team, the opposition are trying to build up from the back, that means that they will push higher up the pitch and, 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 and engage there. Counter-pressing is, is slightly different because as it suggests what you're what you're doing with the pressure there is is not just to win the ball back, but to win the ball back in a certain um, phase of the game, whereby you can then counterattack from it. Um, so yeah, gegenpressing is is just the German phrase for counter pressing or pressing against a team and I guess the the the, what the idea is here is that if you can press the ball back quickly in that high area win it back the opposition will be in a possession phase so they will usually in possession what you're trying to do is have as much space between your players so that you can uh, manipulate the space easier it's harder for the opposition to mark you so if you can win the ball back in that phase there's a lot of um, space for you to exploit um, so Gagum pressing teams are teams that will try and win back the ball really quickly after a turnover and make the most of a uh, um, or even a build up I should say, not really a turnover but that the the idea there is that you win the ball back quickly and then exploit the spaces um, within the, the defensive team by having like really quick attacks, um, so yeah Gagum pressing is is that is that something that would necessarily describe Leeds as doing? A lot of the time probably not because I don't think that we Necessarily have an intense high press in in terms of numbers. Um, We'll not often have more than two or three players um, pressing the ball because of the man marking system. Um, But I do think we've seen it at times in the last season. So I remember Josh Hobbs put up a video uh, last season just showing Calvin Phillips winning the ball back for the high press. And and as a result of that, Leeds being able to um, set, set off on a quick. Attack and there's a couple of examples actually of Pascal Strauch. Um I think he wins the ball back and the ball ends up going to um, Jack Harrison, who sets up um, Rodrigo for that lovely chip. Was it against Burnley? Um, um, so yeah, that that would be that to me would be an example of a counter-press but I think when you talk about teams who counter-press what you're thinking of is teams like RB Leipzig whose whole model is almost you when you're building up from the back you launch the ball into your forward to hold for them to hold it up if they don't win the second ball you then um, jump on the jump on the second ball with a really aggressive midfield press uh, and then the the attempt the, the idea then is to just win the ball back in that situation and sort of batter your way through whereas I don't think Leeds are quite so much um, about that I think for them they their high press is a lot more about winning the ball back once it's been turned over, so that you can't get counter-attacked on yourself. And this is something that City do. So City have a high press because they like to control possession in the opposition half. They have a really high back line, and if they lose the ball in an attacking situation, it's very easy for opponents to pick the ball up and then find dangerous balls in behind, uh, and their their defence can get turned over. So the for them, the high press is very much about stopping the opposition from being able to do that. So it's almost like a defensive high press um, rather. Than an attacking high press which is what you get from Gagan pressing
2: and i think uh, an example of gegenpressing pressing that leeds fans will all remember would be when we played barnsley um, in the championship towards the end of last season and they seem to have very consciously chosen a lot of coaches from germany who uh, austria sorry who uh who you know are interested in this approach and know how to implement it and i, I remember reading some stat that Barnsley had seven percent lower pass completion than any other team in Europe's top five leagues or top six leagues or whatever it was. And the the idea is just essentially lump the ball up to a big man and then and then press the hell out of it when you know if the if the flick on doesn't come. So it, I, it's it's interesting um, when you think about long ball being a sort of a a retrograde way to play football to see people playing it in in interesting new ways that are actually quite sophisticated.
1: I think um, Arsenal is another good example of that. The The Arsenal game where they beat us 4-2, that was another great example of sort of counter-pressing in that they just pressed really high and stopped us from being able to build up. And then because they have the attacking players who can then punish you in those situations in our build-up phase, we really, got, um, we really struggled against them. So yeah, you'll remember um, Melier giving away... Um, gave away a penalty.
2: When it comes to counter-pressing, uh, there's a really interesting question here, I thought, from Adam Michael Finney. He asks, uh, watching Southgate's England team, there were almost no 2v1 counter-presses to win the ball back. Uh, Leeds, although playing man-to-man, create many 2v1s while counter-pressing. I remember Mourinho talking about how Klopp created 3v1s all over Klopp's Dortmund as they beat Real Madrid in the Champions League. So how does Bielsa create pressing overloads in man-to-man marking?
3: Well, the the Southgate one it probably involves a team having to actually commit men forward to to counter press with a two v one. So that that would probably answer that question. <laughs> um, but the I think a big part of the uh, Bielsa one is that with with and this, this is something I kind of touched on earlier uh, that the way that sort of leads uh, press a, an opponent is like they will block the the passing lane to the player they are marking. So then and then press it. So like they're not. They are leaving their man, but they still—it's a hard option for the player to pass the ball. So that's why it gives the impression of um, two v ones all over the pitch. And they, so again, that's like a—it's a function of the of the ma- the man marking system that they then when when they press and will leave their markers, they are able to overload well, the players when they're counter pressing in this way.
2: And as John was saying, that that's why it looks like two v ones rather than three v ones or four v ones, like you might see with Liverpool, right?
3: Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah, I think it's just—it's—it's just. It's, it's just... The, the way that the structure breaks down is that you'll you'll always have a couple of players around the ball because um, there, there's always going to be an easy-ish option um, for, for the pass out so what happens is as Tom says you just you'll see a player closing the passing lane and then pressing um, but Leeds will never commit more than two or three players because they still have to think about where their players are and so uh, you know if, if, if too many players commit to the, the immediate press, then you'll end up with system overloads elsewhere and that's going to be a problem in the long run.
2: Okay, so in terms of structure, does anyone have anything else they'd like to add before we move on?
1: No, we've got on the running order just a mid-block and low-block, which I think are probably worth talking about just even in passing. But um, Josh and I spoke to Eric Laurie, a coach on our Patreon um Um, podcast recently and he was talking about how um, we probably will see teams moving to more of a mid block system Um, and that's really really interesting if you wanted to understand a little bit more about high mid and low blocks um, do do head over to our patreon and check that out but the general theory is that when you're playing a high uh, pressing system obviously you're not controlling a huge space from Behind your high press, so you have um, the, the the halfway line, and then your own defensive half is is usually not very well defended, and there'll be ex- plenty of examples you can think of where Leeds have conceded goals on the break because of that. Um, equally, a low block has the other problem, right? So you're controlling your own defensive third, but you're not controlling the midfield third or the or the uh, opponent's defensive third, um, and the mid block it sits in you sit in the middle, but you have a, a little bit of a level of control over the forward. Uh, the forward third, and then you have a little bit of control over the backward third as well. And um, Eric Laurie's argument was that we're going to see more mid-block systems, right so teams working out how to sit in in uh, in, a, in a more passive um, formation, um, but then engaging as and when they they want to push forward in certain situations or drop back in certain situations. Um, so a mid-block is yes, yeah, simply simply that where you're where you are trying to just control space, keep an eye in the front third and the and the and be able to cover the back third in case teams are going to try and hit the space in behind you um, and so I think yes yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting following that following um, uh, that, that sort of tactical development um, and low blocks I think are worth talking about because a lot of people think that leads well there's a lot of talk about leads struggling against low blocks um, but I think a lot of people don't really necessarily um, understand when a low block is a low block but um, there's there's a lot of times in the championship in particular where Leeds were sitting against uh, low block so the opposition would just sit deep wouldn't allow wouldn't allow any spaces in their uh, defensive structure and and would invite Leeds to break them down uh, and then obviously would try and attack into that space behind the Leeds um, the, the the Leeds line of pressure and try and get counter-attacking goals as well so hopefully that just gives you a bit of a sense of what a mid and, and low block um, is
2: and is there anything that you could look for, any sort of telltale signs on the pitch as to what what which one of these high mid or low blocks a team might be playing, like the position of the striker in defence or for example, or something like that? I think the best
1: thing to do is just is to keep a mental note of where pressures are taking place. Um, So by pressure, we just mean any player moving towards a player on the ball with with the task of either slowing them down, forcing them wide or winning the ball back. And I think you can learn a huge amount by watching an opponent's build up um, and seeing where it is that the first line of pressure comes. So if you're watching leads and seeing them build up, just have a look and see are are the centre backs able to just entirely move the ball around backwards and forwards between the back line without any pressure really coming in that's probably you're probably not playing against a high press Um, if you then move it forward into towards the halfway line and then the first line of pressure is coming there that's probably a mid block and yeah a low block basically they're just inviting you to trans um, to, to transition the ball all the way down the field before that pressure comes in so they're basically saying we're not going to worry about you transitioning from from defense uh, for defensive position to an attacking position what we're going to do is we're going to try and make it as hard as possible for you to score in that uh, attacking um in 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 our final third so it's all about where the engagement of the pressure is taking place rather than where the team is sitting because you can have a team that sits quite high but they won't engage until um and in in a certain situation and so a great example of that is maybe brighton so brighton what brighton did really uh, do really well against us is they Forces into wide areas. So they are sort of doing a semi high press because they are going to try and force you into your fullbacks, but then they'll allow the ball to just transition down the side of the field and then suddenly they'll spring this pressing trap where uh, where the the wing back and then the outside centre back and then the outside forward will all converge on a space and the the central midfielder will come across as well and you end up with with them boxing in, in players quite in quite advanced areas but that the real um, moments of pressure aren't really coming until around the sort of halfway line the final third but they are doing pressing higher up the field because they are dictating where they want the ball to go
2: and for the listeners, John is wearing a blue T-shirt with a seagull on it. So um, <laughs> <laughs> it's no surprise that he would be extolling the virtues of Brighton's uh, pressing system. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, let's talk about movement. So the first thing that I've got in the, in this uh, running order about movement is um, a term that I've always had a bit of a problem with. Um, it's positional play. Um, and the reason I've always had a bit of a problem with it is just because I would have thought that all football would be positional play. So John, can you tell us what you mean what is what is meant when um when learned football people talk about positional play?
1: So positional play is something which is developed from out of I think again South American football, certainly Spanish speaking football. You may have seen it called juego de posición or something like that. I, I won't I won't try and say that properly, but um there's been a lot of arguments on Twitter recently, actually, about the usefulness of, of a phrase like positional play because, um, it, one, it's really, really hard to define what positional play is because, as Tom says, you know, all... All football teams are attempting to manipulate positions through movement and and build up and and even if you're hitting the ball long, right, there's still a positional element to that. Um, the, the the classic definition of positional play is is that you're using your players and and using movements of the players to create superiorities, um, which sounds sounds awful, I suppose, but what what it means. What, it, what they mean by a superiority is just a situation where you've got more players in a zone of the fit, pit, pitch than the opposition so you're talking like a two-on-one or a three-on-two etc cetera, etc cetera, or any combination of those numbers but the idea then is that you're manipulating the way that the team moves so that they're able to get the ball and their players into into these overloads um, and the idea then is if you can do that then you can um, you can more easily create opportunities to attack. And I guess as Leeds fans, we, we sort of know this. We know that the lead system does certain things that makes our players better, perhaps, or that our team's better than the sum of their parts. And I think a lot of this is because the, the whole positional play system is designed to give players space and time on the ball to be able to do things. Um, and I think... The better, obviously, elite players are able to do things under pressure. They're able to do things really quickly. Um, and, and they don't, they aren't put under pressure by maybe, um, by maybe having those things removed. But for our players, some of them need to have a little bit more time and space on the ball. And the system really allows them to do that. And for me, that's what the benefits, the benefits of positional play are. Um, so because Bielsa can teach them to move in certain ways, what they're all doing is affording each other more space and time on the ball so that when they're attacking, um, they can, they can generate these superiority. And they have, they have not just. Um, you're not worrying necessarily just about having superior players. Then you're you're worrying about having more uh, numbers of players in small areas, so that you can um, you can overcome the fact that the opposition might have superior players by having more players around the ball in in these various situations. So for me, that's what positional players, and um, and that's what the edge that we get from Marcelo Bielsa is in terms of the structural stuff.
2: Yeah, it's funny that you talk about superiority sounding like an awful. Concepts. I can imagine Kiko Kassia sees it a very different way. Although he would probably also claim to have not understood the word or never heard of it before. So so when it comes to um, football terminology, it seems like there's a bit of a hierarchy as to um, the, the things that everyone knows. Like Everyone knows what possession is. Everyone knows what a shot is. Uh, and then there's a sort of level beyond that where you'll start to get some pushback from um, proper football men. And uh, I guess this is one of the key terms that proper football men tend to get upset about. I think I remember Stan Collymore having a bit of a bee in his bonnet about this one. This is transition. So, Tom, what do we mean when uh, we talk about transitional states or about teams transitioning the ball and things like that?
3: Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned about the hierarchy of these words, actually, because ever since I've started doing this podcast, I've started saying transition a lot when I'm discussing football with my friends and they think I sound like a right knob because I'm trying to sound clever. Um, but yeah, so transition is basically, well, it, there's sort of, sort of two sort of states a team could be in. They can now be defending, so they're in their block, which is out, so, well, mid-block, high-block, low-block, um, or they're, um, they're sort of in their, almost like an attacking formation, like we mentioned earlier, the leads do tend to attack in a free in a free-one free one 3 um, and then the transition is basically the period between when, say if a team has, has the ball they're attacking and then when they lose the ball, they are then transitioning into their block. So that's, um, and then similarly when a team is defending, they, if they then regain the ball, they're then transitioning to trigger into the attacking phase of the game where they are sort of obviously nearer to the um, opposition's goal and they're into sort of their attacking formation. Yeah. So the transition is just sort of the, the bit between the, between those two states and, um, And because there isn't like, there's to a lesser extent there's like less of a formation in this at this time, so that's when you can see teams getting caught in transition, which is a phrase that phrase that we use a lot, and it's easy to sort of uh, beat a man or cause teams problems when they're in these two states.
2: And we'll use the term transitional a lot on the podcast, right? We'll say that, oh, this this was a very transitional game if we're playing Southampton or someone like that. That, as far as I can tell, basically means it's a game where there are lots of transitions, right?
3: Yeah, definitely. I think there was, I think Tom Warville did an article on The Athletic where it was like the number of possessions a team has per game. Um, and I think Southampton Leeds were two of the highest teams on that. So that suggests to me like they're, they're sort of not losing the ball, but there's a lot of turnovers. So there's therefore a lot more transitioning because those teams are going from their attacking state to their defensive state a lot more because they're having a lot more possessions of the ball.
2: And another term that we that we hear used quite a lot in relation to Leeds, but I think um, in relation to a lot of teams is, um, uh, especially Manchester City actually, is overload to isolate. So Tom, can you tell us what that means?
3: Leeds is a, a great example of this, probably not this year, but was when we were in the Championship is, um, if you're wanting to, so in, in Leeds' case, it's you're wanting to isolate Jack Harrison one-on-one against his full-back. Um, and the way leads to this is they would um the build-up would take up uh would be mainly on the right-hand side so you'd have ailing uh one of, probably one of the eights and then costa and then the build-up on that side and then when the opportunity arises you switch the ball to harrison and because the team are the opposition are defending more on the right-hand side of the pitch there's more space for harrison on that side and he can sort of attack his full-back one-on-one one. so that's yeah overloading on the right hand side to isolate Harrison on that left hand side
2: and one of the ways you might um uh, get the ball to Harrison would be via a cross field ball and John I know you're not a huge fan of cross field balls so can you suggest <laughs> any alternative methods
1: yeah so I guess th- th- this is moving us more into the sort of the area of, of build-up in general um so anyone who watches Leeds will know that when Leeds um have the ball from a goal kick or um if the goalkeeper ends up with the ball in his hands from whatever situation, um, what what tends to happen is that they will Leeds will try and build up from from the back, and you'll all have a good sense of what that looks like. The ball usually goes to either one of the centre backs. If if the centre backs are being pressed, you might see Melier clip the ball over to one of the fullbacks. Um, but the the general principle I think of our build up is that we we try and move the ball into wide areas. Um, to start off with and then we use our midfielders as a as a way of helping that build up in the wide areas so you'll often see either calvin phillips or one of the eights uh, dropping in if the fullback has the ball to help them do a quick bounce pass down down the field so that they can get uh, into a more advanced area and then once we get into those wide areas further down the field you'll see again the the fullback will help out the wide player and you'll see the center midfielder on that side making a triangle where they'll play the ball around and try and get the ball into a dangerous situation as well well so that's the general build build up principle what you largely what we see is the ball going out wide to the fullbacks the fullbacks then moving it into a more advanced areas using um the wingers and the and the the central midfielders and then if the ball isn't sort of played quickly in a in a quick attacking um transition you'll you'll see this this sort of build up with with three or four players with calvin phillipson sitting in the middle of the field able to switch the ball between one side to the other um the, the the first moment of, of the build up is called the Salida. Again, that's a, a Spanish word, so it's something that um the Bielsa uh, will probably I don't know if he talks about it with the players, but that's a Spanish word which just means exit. Um, and that, that's the whole point is how do you get out of your own half, maintain the possession of the ball, um, and, and get the, get into a situation where you can then get the ball into dangerous areas. Um, and so that, that is a, a very fundamental idea. And there's a lot of players that you will see. There's a lot of managers that you'll see in South America who will use that, that kind of, um, that mode of build up. The other thing that you might see is the center back dropping in between the, the two fullbacks to just give a little bit, um, give give them a little bit more time on the ball as well. Or you, you may see, and Granite Shaka is someone who does this a lot. Someone who drops inside behind the in the space left behind the fullback, so the fullback can push down the field. The central midfield pivot can drop into that space, and then there's again, you're just giving yourself more options to be able to maintain possession of the ball uh, and get it into more advanced areas whilst maintaining control of the ball. Um, so yeah, that's that's something that m- many people will know well, but that will be and um, that's really really scripted and um, I'm always tempted to sort of do a long study on this and just break down the, the top five ways that leads build up from the back but I think I'd probably need some some uh, data to to do that for me rather than just watching all of the build-up phases that leads do on video and just tracking it
2: as exciting as that would be <laughs> um, so, so leads feel like they're quite unique and uh, well not unique but different to uh both how people expect them to be and to other managers that play um, possession football in the back in that once we get it into the, into the opponent's half, we generally attack quite directly, right? As opposed to someone like Manchester City who will continue to play, um, not slowly as such, but they'll comp- continue to play lots of uh, combinations until they work a very definite gap where it seems like Bielsa would ideally try and attack as quickly as possible once he starts to reach the final third.
1: Yeah. Again, it depends on the, on the situation. And part of the problem with talking about the tactics of Leeds is that we've been in two different divisions in the last five years. And so, you know, the, 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 the glory period that we talk about, that seven game period at the beginning of the promotion season, we were just playing ultimate control football. Um, we were just holding the ball. We were able to just manipulate oppositions. We were able to move the ball into dangerous areas and create dangerous chances. Um, and when you're doing that, then you are going to be able to talk about. You know the salida, the, the this build up, this slow build up. You're able to talk about overloading to isolate because you're holding the ball in one area for a long time, and you're able to pull players in from the opposition and allow your uh, your wide players to get isolated on the opposite side. Um, but what we're seeing in in And in the Premier League is much more of what we've called this transitional thing which is the realisation that when it comes to possessing the ball Leeds going up against Premier League sides aren't going to have a cutting edge in the same way that they did in the Championship so we're talking a lot more about transitional football now because again that's where Leeds get their edge Leeds, Leeds team are so fit that you can constantly switch possession backwards and forwards you can constantly press you can constantly harry teams and you can counter-attack at pace um, when they when that's the situation that is available to you then the best thing to, for you to do in those situations is to be more transitional because if we went possession heavy against these teams they would just grind us to the get the, the floor but this is what we saw in the man city game where we drew one one um was that we we looked really good in that game when we were playing transitional when city allowed us to play transitional and, and got sort of tied up in that in that sort of back and forth of possession turnovers we were in a lot of trouble but when in the the final few minutes of that game when they just settled down they brought on i think they brought did they bring on Fernandinho um, and it was able to control the game a little bit more in terms of possession then we started looking a little bit bit shaky again so, I think a lot, a lot of what we're going to see this season is going to be a, a lot more focused around quick attacks because um, because that's where we're going to get our edge. We're not going to be able to break down um, oppositions that sit deep in the Premier League. So the best thing to, to, to try and do is to make the most of, of of getting the ball forward quickly, so that there's no settled structure and, and going from there. And I guess just the final thing to say on that is that so much of this, so much of your tactics, especially for Marcelo Bielsa, as we've said rely on you being passive when you're when you're reacting to the structure of an opposition in order to play the formation that you're playing you're always going to be quite passive in that sense and the same is true in terms of like where you're going to engage in your press and how you're going to engage in terms of attacking so if a team teams in the championship very quickly realized that if they tried to possess the ball against us they were going to lose so they would start sitting deep and try and catch us on the counter-attack but in the premier league teams aren't doing that um, so teams are coming out against us and they're able to pressure press us high and they're able to cause us problems in mid-block as we've seen with teams like Brighton and so for Leeds the the best thing to do now is to just try and be as quick and and transitional and as direct and counter attacking as possible Um, maybe it will get to the point where if we bring in better players over time we will Move to a more possessional uh, system, but a lot of it just comes from the way that teams judge you. So if a team thinks that you're really good, they'll tend to just sit a bit deeper against you, and you'll have to be better at possession football. Um, But obviously, teams aren't going to do that against you if you're not good at possession football. So they'll probably try and get a win by by putting you under pressure. So there's so many different things in 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 play that that this becomes quite a complicated issue.
2: Yeah, I I think uh, one of the things is that people consider Bielsa to be an ideologue, and he is an ideologue, but um not in all the ways that people think he is right uh, I certainly when it comes to possession versus direct football he's consistently shown through all of his seasons at Leeds that he will do he will almost take the path of least resistance in in that respect he will take the path that the game indicates almost uh, you know you see the very early games against Stoke and Derby we didn't actually have that much possession. We were, um, you know, it was about 54%, 55%, something like that. And then also you see games against West Brom um, in our promotion season. They were mostly sort of 50-50 in terms of possession. And I think the threshold for where Bielsa is willing to go a bit more direct is is lower than some people think it is maybe. I think it it is um, it is determined almost by the opposition in the same way that the formation is. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that, Tom.
3: Again, similar to sort of the style we we said earlier about the the eight. Well, when people sort of mention there's like there's a six and an eight, there's like there is not an ideal version of what Bielsa says he wants to do. He will just sort of do it for what he thinks is best for that opposition, maybe even what the players he has um, available at that time what, what plays their strengths. Like you'd want a player like Rafinha probably in a more in a transitional game because it gives him a better opportunity to score than he would in a, pos- a possession game.
1: I think he's idealistic about processes rather than like tactical realities and i think that's where people kind of get him wrong like he he's always going to match up structurally which means he's sort of ideological about or idealistic about um like the idea of structure but not specific structures Uh, and the same is true about the the attacking side side of the side of things as well he he has ways that he will play um, but it is so determined by the opposition that they they just seem like it seems like a more process heavy heavy like a meta level um, idealism.
2: And I think this is a real problem for the talk spot pundits of this world because <laughs> they I, I think that is re- genuinely operating on a, a higher level of uh, conceptual thinking than they are capable of. Certainly on live radio, um, uh, so so they do tend to say, "Oh, he's just all out attack. He's you know he's, he's he won't change the way he plays." Um, but it's 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 really. I I don't really see Bielsa as any less flexible than, um, Sam Allardyce, for example, uh, who also has a very defined way of playing football and is not going to change it. Anyway, uh, third man runs. Tom, what's the third man run?
3: The best way is probably to use an example that like if Click is in possession of the ball and Ailing makes a run down the outside, but he's made that run before Click is making the pass to. Tyler Roberts saying and then Ayling's already running down the side so Roberts can play the pass in so he's getting sort of starting the run and not just waiting for one player to possess the ball and then play play the pass to them like they've already started their run and these, this is where like the, the patterns of play kind of come into it a bit more that Leeds will use third man runs to sort of sort of at, attack a team more at, at pace rather than just sort of the more controlling passing style of play where one player gets the ball passes it to the other like Ailing expects the ball to come from Roberts so he'll make the run before Roberts has even got the ball
2: and this is where we see some of those videos I remember there was a video of a goal lead scored and a goal uh, Bielsa's chili side scored that looked almost identical and that's because the players have practiced these uh, these patterns and these third man runs on the training ground right John?
1: yeah for sure i think the, the the beauty of the third man run is that it just allows you to do that manipulation of space that we've talked about so what you what you're talking about is if a player makes a run usually you would expect the pass to go directly to him and the problem is is that teams can defend against that you can block off the passing lane or you can track the track the runner um, but what Leeds do really well is they find an intermediary player in between that so you can play the ball one way and then it comes back to that original player making the run so again it's just about ways of moving around oppositions and adding just a little bit more of a, a, a layer there that maybe isn't there for, for most other clubs but yeah Bielsa will be running these drills all the time in, in, in training and uh, it's, it's about getting the players habituated into these ideas um, so yeah I think it's it's um uh, just another area where you get an edge from from Bielsa because he's allowing you to manipulate space in ways that are creative and and allow you to be creative with less um talented players than than you might do
2: i think this is one area of Leeds' play that does remain the same no matter the opponent and no matter the uh formation that Leeds end up playing right
3: i think it was a sort of bielsa quote that said that uh, like the third man run is the, probably the most underused thing in football because it's so it's hard to mark against but it's so effective so you could see why it's such a key feature of his teams
2: and set pieces uh the last the last little uh section in our movement section i guess we're talking about attacking set pieces here rather than defensive set pieces so not something leads are particularly known for um how does Marcelo Bielsa generally go about organising attacking set-pieces?
3: My answer is I don't really have an answer. Um, <laughs> I I, I've never really got the impression that Bielsa has something, it's, it's like set-pieces is almost something that he's not as bothered about. I don't, I don't know if I'm really being a bit harsh here, but for me it just seems to be, this is probably the most simplistic part of, the, of Bielsa's football, that it's more just, you. There, there isn't really much nuance to it, like they'll just sort of, I don't want to say, it sounds like I'm really underplaying just putting the ball in, but I, I just don't, I think it's not something that we, there are like patterns of play or two. It's just, it, it is more, much more simplistic.
2: Do you think maybe that's partly because in football in general, set pieces have become so much more sophisticated and you have set piece coaches at certain clubs and nearly every club is, is doing, you know, some kind of routine rather than just, lumping the ball in so Leeds just seem the same as anyone else as opposed to in open play where you can see very unique things about Leeds
3: yeah definitely and I think I think when I'm thinking back to uh, the second season Bielsa's second season of the championship that we we went on a massively long run without scoring from a set piece and then I think Click scored that one against Middlesbrough which you could argue wasn't a set piece because he just kind of had a shot from like a second ball from a corner Um, and Bielsa just said Oh, this I just let the players do it. So I just I just get the impression that he just doesn't care. He just sees it as a waste of time. <laughs>
2: Didn't Graham Smith claim credit for that one? I seem to remember Graham asked him a question uh, before one of the games. Why don't you take short corners more often? And then we scored from a short corner the next <laughs> game or something. But let's move on. <laughs> Part three glossary it says here in big <laughs> bold capital letters. So I'm going to do this as more of a, a quick fire thing. I'll um I'll I'll name a term and I'll give you one of your names and you can tell me what it means. Uh, the first one, I think this is a definitely another another thing that proper football men absolutely despise. Half spaces. John, what are the half spaces?
1: <laughs> yeah, half spaces is a funny one. I don't I don't really use the phrase much myself, but um it's a, it's a space that I, I think it it was developed by I didn't, Pep Guardiola made it famous because if you look at famous pictures of the training grounds that he works on they they divide the ground up in a certain way and the half space is just basically channels that aren't quite on the as, as wide as the The touchline but they're also outside the the center of the field as well and there's a for some reason that it's they're considered to be very creative spaces so you get a lot of creative players who will drift into these half spaces um, pick up the ball and are able to create things from it. i know that david sumter has done some statistical analysis on it and they reckon that the reason why half spaces are so good is because you get the best view of of everything that's going on from these spaces, so um, I do think there is value in talking about them. But um, when people say half spaces, what they usually <laughs> mean is that this is player as an attacking player and they found space in a slightly wide area rather than in the middle of the field.
3: So going back to what the, the thing you said about Guardiola and the pictures he used, like, is it like the, there's five vertical zones and like the half, yeah. there's like the centre, the wing, and then the half space is this sort of magical area between the two that there isn't really a start or end, but that's where that's what this kind of talks about
1: yeah so positional play something i didn't talk about with positional play is that if you're playing against a back four then the best spaces for you to attack are the spaces between the four center backs. so that's the three the the middle and then the two like the two half spaces that you're talking about and then outside the the full backs and which is the wing the wing area so yeah i think technically that's where the the, the 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 lines are. If you're playing against the back four, those channels will technically be open as well. So the idea is that you should be able to find through balls through there into in behind the, the the back line as well.
2: And uh, turnover. This is something when we're talking about transitional games. There'll be we'll often hear the term turnover. Tom, what does that mean?
3: Yeah, this this kind of we kind of touched a little bit, little bit on this. I think in the sort of counter press, gegenpress, uh, press pressing section, but It's like when I say a team is attacking. Um, and then the ball, they lose the ball, or the the, or the opposition win the ball back. That would be a turnover, and then that would be when you're changing to your you're in your tra- both teams are in their transitional phase. So the team that's attacking is then moving back to their defensive block, and the uh, attacking team is in transition after the turnover, move into their uh, sort of attacking phase of the game.
2: And to further boil the piss of the proper football <laughs> men of this world, we're going to talk about pivot. Tom, what is a pivot?
3: A pivot. Um, this again is sort of covered in the the salida or the the, the build up section, but that's like in Leeds' for leads as formation. That would be sort of Calvin Phillips. Like when when they're building up, the play will pivot around Phillips because he'll be used to either sort of the one centre back will give the ball to Phillips and he'll give it back to the other centre back. Um, so the ball sort of the movement pivots around him, or the, the the full back will give the ball to, to Phillips and then he'll pass it back to centre back. So like they just. The pivot. he will be like the pivot player between uh, the two passes between the right back and the centre backs
2: I suppose what I'm interested in here is is there ever a situation where the pivot of a team is not the deepest line midfielder John
1: yeah so for me pivot is always going to be like a it's always going to be like a build up thing and and the question is whether or not you have a single or a double pivot um, I don't think you would ever talk about a pivot further up the field because I think this is always like a low build up thing um, so yeah I I guess it's a team like Manchester United will have we usually have a four-two-three-one, and we would call that a double pivot because those two players are, I guess, defensive midfielders, and they'll help out in the in the in the build-up phase. And you'll, I guess, you'll have one covering one side and one covering the other. But I guess for Leeds as well, we do have like a double pivot system as well because you'll often see one of the eights dropping in on the opposite side to Phillips. So Phillips will move one way create space that one of the eights will then drop into too. So um, I guess, it, like with anything, there's a level of slippage with all of these words. Um, but for me, like a pivot player, is the, the pivot aspect is that, as Tom said, they're they're facilitating build-up between different players. So they, they're just players whose responsibility is to make sure that there's always an easy option on so that you can control the ball in, in possession.
2: And intuitively, to me, it feels like occasionally, although you would never talk about them as a pivot, um, that sometimes that could also be the middle centre-back in a three. Um, sometimes we, I think we played that way sometimes with Ben White when he was playing in the middle of a three. Uh, he would be one of the main facilitators of the ball or am I barking up the wrong tree there?
1: No, you can definitely get get that sort of thing happening. So it's something that um, SC Freiburg do, the the team that I support in Germany. They play with a back three, but their centre-back in possession pushes forward as, a, as the highest, as the lowest midfielder. Um, and again, that's just a, a way of, uh, allowing you to to have that pivot play in the build up phase, so that you can maintain possession. So yeah, there's no there's nothing stopping you from doing. I mean, you can talk about inverted center, uh, fullbacks as well. Um That's exactly what they're doing as well. So when João Cancelo, the the Manchester City player, inverts in the build up phase, what he's doing is just rather than pushing forward in a wide area, he's just helping out in the midfield, so that you've got another player who can maintain possession. So technically, a an inverted fullback is a is just another pivot player, really, in that sense.
2: And it's only a matter of time before Gary Lineker demands that they play in midfield. <laughs> Finally, to end the glossary and to end this, se- end the most of the tactical discussion, we're going to talk about game state. <laughs> <laughs> and we all know that game state is the most important thing in football, and it's the only thing worth talking about. So, Tom, can you tell us what the game state is?
3: Yeah. So basically, it's. If a team, well, and nil nil, that like that, it's both teams will sort of be, it's more even. But like when a team goes one nil up, traditionally a team will then sort of might defend that lead, so they'll they'll go back into like a lower block rather than if they were say like in a mid block or a higher block. So they'll be defending more, and another team, the team that's losing, will be attacking more. So this is quite common when you see teams sort of rack up like three xg after being after losing. Um, because the other team is allowing them to be attack more because they have the lead so it's like the, the state of the game um, to make it sound a bit more exciting than it is um means that they they've allowed them to attack more because they're already leading um, it's, it's it's in NFL they sort of call it garbage time so like if a team is leading so much that a team can get, two touchdowns, then they just like ignore it from the stats because it doesn't really mean anything. And it would be quite interesting to see if that would actually be applied to football.
2: And can you think of any examples, either of you, where, I mean, we talk about game state all the time, so this shouldn't be too difficult, but where it's applied in Leeds games and and radically the game has radically changed based on the game state?
1: I guess a good example would be Liam Cooper getting sent off against Man City. Um, That's kind of game state as well. When we're talking about game state, we're just talking about any situation that changes the the baseline um, of what you might expect from a game. Um, So yeah, a player gets sent off and then you would expect that to have an impact on the way that the opposition, that the opposition are going to play against that 10 man side. Or as Tom said, a goal is, is a great example of that as well. Once a goal is scored, then, then oppositions will change the way they play. And so, um, I think for us, we talk about it a lot because when you're analysing the data, it's important to have those game states in your mind. So as, as Tom said, you know, if a team sits back on a 1-0, I mean, I guess a great example of that would be the, the England final where where England went 1-0 up and then sat back on their lead. And then I think they conceded close to 3XG off, off the back of that. Um, and yeah, the reason why that was the case is because they were happy to give italy a lot of possession etc etc so it's just a shorthand way of saying yeah the data is important but we need to think about what was going on in the field to 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 give a bit of context to that data as well
2: okay so to end this mammoth troll through the annals of tactics um we have a final question from udav chawan i hope i have pronounced that correctly probably haven't uh, and it's what tactical changes do you think Bielsa could make in the upcoming season?
1: So, for me, the big question is whether or not we stay as transitional as we have, or whether or not we try and bring in players to maybe control possession a little bit more. That's the most interesting tactical development I think we'll see this season.
3: For me, it'd be either refining what we saw in the first half of last season. So, like being more attacking, probably a, a little bit more open, but sort of it'd probably be refining the role of one of the eights to sort of make that doable or we'll double down on the second half of the season which i really hope doesn't happen so that we're a bit more solid a bit less attacking um yeah so i think it'll be yeah, refined the first one will just be really boring in the second one which will be horrible what a great way to end <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay so uh thanks everyone for listening if people want to know more about tactics um where should they go john
1: yeah i think twitter's your place there's there's plenty of people who are interesting and the thing that i usually do is find people who um are knowledgeable about a single club and um, if you find that club interesting tactically then just find those those accounts that that really um that really cover it so that's that's largely what i do there, there's books out there as well a lot of people use um michael cox's stuff uh, so he's written a couple of One's called The Mixer, one's called um, Zonal Marking, uh, which was his his blog name when he was originally writing tactics stuff. Jonathan Wilson as well has um, Inverting the Pyramid, which a lot of people um, see as being quite a seminal work in terms of thinking about how tactics change. Um, And yeah, I guess there's plenty of people writing blogs as well, so that's probably the best way of doing that.
2: And of course, a duty-bound to say that throughout the season, there will be various interviews with interesting tactics people. On our patreon which you can sign up to if you go to www.patreon.com forward slash all stats aren't we it's not just tactics stuff it's uh, there's going to be loads of detailed previews of every game authors lists every so often there's going to be all sorts of great great stuff and it only costs the price of a pint as they say so without further ado i suppose it's time to say thank you john thank you and thank you tom thank you tom <laughs> And we'll see you all later <laughs>